I'm going to jump down to the slide that says each of us has been given a portion of responsibility for shalom. Let me jump down to there. Each of us. There you go. Thank you. I'm going to skip a lot of the, the intro. We, we um, um, are in a series entitled Shalom. And, and if you want some of the background, you can go online, listen to our podcast, go to the YouTube channel. Um, also, these notes are available online every week, so you can also get our notes through that me- mechanism as well. So the, the parts that I'm jumping over here, if you want, want to get those. T- tonight we're talking about peace with yourself. There's four kinds of peace that we should have. We should be at peace with God, peace with ourselves, peace with others, and then peace with creation. And so we've done two of these. We're doing the third one tonight, being at peace with others. Our two primary texts are Matthew 25, 14 to 19, the parable of the talents that gives us our tagline, peace with your portion, but then also out of the creation narrative, Genesis 1, 1 to 31, we we see in the Genesis story of creation and also this parable that there's this idea and this expectation of being at peace with all four of these parts and experiences in our life. So tonight, again, we're talking about being at peace with others. Each of us has been given a portion of responsibility for shalom in the family of God, a portion of relational unity assigned to us. Did you have chores that you were assigned to do when you were growing up? I hope you did. We do chores in our house. Everybody has to do their part in order for everything to get done. You you have a portion of relational peace that's been assigned to you, and you know what? I have a portion that's been assigned to me. And the only way we're going to be at peace in the body of Christ and in the family of God if each of us are faithful in the portion of peace relationally that we've been given. And I hope that this message tonight is going to help you if you've been off track in pursuing peace that you're going to get back on track. Let me read this verse. It's Matthew 25, 14. It says, I, again, the kingdom of heaven, this is the beginning of the parable of the talents, again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. Listen to what, listen to what Jesus says. He called together his servants and entrusted them while he was gone. He called together his servants. I believe that Jesus here is not just trying to set a scene in our minds. I don't think Jesus is just trying to give us some spatial context to help us see how the story played out. We, we understand that he brought all the servants together. We understand that he apportioned out those talents with them while they were in the same room, and he judged them in the same way when he returned. But I think in this moment, Jesus isn't just being contextual. I think he's being prophetic. I think Jesus is saying, I want to be able to speak this word over my church, I think he wants to be able to say, when I look at my church, when I look at my body, when I look at my family, I want to be able to say to them, I call them together because they are in relational peace with one another. I think Jesus longs for that word to be presently descriptive, presently descriptive. He calls us into a place of togetherness. And each of us have a portion of relational peace that he has assigned to us. So I have two words that I'm going to give you tonight. The first one is beware, and then the second one is belong. Somebody say beware. Beware. Somebody say belong. All right, beware, beware. Beware of cheap substitutes. You with me? 
All right. Speaking of relational unity, I'm going to work against it a little bit right now. This is the only real mayonnaise that exists in the world. Right? Can I, can I just say that? Any other mayonnaise is a cheap substitute. If, if you like Miracle Whip, I, I just, I don't even know what that is. I don't even know why they call it Miracle Whip because there is nothing miraculous about it. And people say that Duke's mayonnaise is the real Southern mayonnaise. My children are the 10th generation of Michos in Virginia. We're about as Southern as we get. There is no Duke's mayonnaise in our house. Only real mayonnaise right here. Only real mayonnaise. Next one. There is only one cola product. Thank, thank you. And, and if you want to step that up, you can. You can get Coca-Cola made with cane sugar. If you just want to get fancy. If you want to get bougie. You can go all the way there. Don't settle for a cheap substitute. How about the next one? Yep. Now, I'm changing it up for you because I think what you're afraid I'm going to say is that this is the standard for all candy, and it is not. So it's a, you do not have to leave the church. Maybe you've already left the church because of mayonnaise. I'm not saying, now, I like me some raisinets. I, I don't think I've ever met a candy I did not like. My dentist can attest to that. I, what I, the reason why this is up here is because, as it will not be a surprise to many of my friends, this is not what coffee is supposed to taste like. Thank you, David. Thank you. Shots fired. If your coffee is raisiny and chocolatey, I'm just telling you, it's, this is a sign of the end times that the collective palate of the next generation has gone over to the side of raisiny coffee. Did he, did, he just got up like he was going to I know. I know. That's, there's a little inside joke going on there. Next one. All right. Now, I don't know if you are a cigar aficionado or not. I enjoy a good cigar. Hope you enjoy a good cigar. If you get your cigars at the same place where you buy your ibuprofen and your antihistamine, you are not a cigar aficionado. If the person that's selling you the cigars is in a white lab jacket and it's not Halloween, I'm, I'm, I'm helping you tonight, church. Do not settle for a cheap substitute. All right, I got two more. Yes. Have you ever bought an off-brand candle like me? You were in the store. You open it. You smell it. It smells amazing. But you get it home and you light that candle it does not smell burning, what it smells like. It's deception. It smells like melting wax. Now, I'm not saying Yankee Candle is the only one that is real. I think there are some other nice brand name candles that are out there. But I'm just saying, right, and I'm not alone here, right? Is that you, it, 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 you can smell, it's, it's, it, just, it deceives you. And I'm bitter about it. Bitter about it. Do not settle for a cheap Substitute. I think this picture was actually taken in Amanda Hiltz's home in June. In June, she starts prophetically burning these candles 
I was hoping she was going to be here tonight. They closed the JRB. I don't know if you knew that. And so all the people that are coming from across the water had to turn around. And so they're watching from online. So Amanda, I hope you're watching this. This is for you. And this is my last one. And I don't need to say anything about this one. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, now that I loosened you up a little bit, don't settle for false peace. Don't do it. Do, do not settle for false peace. Do not settle for false peace. Because the devil has been tempting the body of Christ with false peace for a long time. And I think over these last couple of years, too many people have been swept away by that deception. Let's just talk about the devil just a little bit. Can, can we do that? John 8, 44. Jesus talking with the religious leaders of his day. He says, you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things that he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. Wow. Wow. He cannot be trusted, and he's good at what he does. He's good at what he does. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Paul writing to the church of Corinth, but I am not surprised, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Let me give you one more, 1 Peter 5, 8. Stay alert, this is Peter writing to the church, stay alert, watch out. For your great enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. All of Scripture, Jesus, the early apostles, the epistles that we have, their writings, none of them say to us that the devil is not a worthy adversary. Now, we're told that he is defeated. We're told that he does not have any authority over us. But all of them say the same thing. But be careful. Because he is good at what he does. If he was able to convince a third of the angels of heaven to rise up in a revolt against God, he's good at what he does. If he was able to convince Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to put at risk paradise, he's good at what he does. And one of Satan's craftiest tricks is to appeal to a godly desire. Let me read that again. One of Satan's craftiest tricks is to appeal to a godly desire. What does that mean? I'm going to tell you. Genesis 3, 4 to 5. This is Satan talking with Eve. We know that Adam is present. He's in the background. He's watching all of this happen. And he says to Eve, you won't die. And she's looking at that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, the only tree that, Lucifer, that, that God said, that's the only tree that you cannot eat from. And here is Lucifer coming to the one, the only boundary that they were given was just this one. And he says, let, let, let me offer you the goodness of the fruit of this tree. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. L listen to what, what he says. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, 
knowing both good and evil. Now, we focus so much on the end of that, knowing both good and evil, but I think the emphasis is on what he says before. You will be like God. It's interesting, he does not say to them, you don't want to be like God. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, eat of this fruit because you want to be as different from him as you can. He doesn't say that. He, he, he doesn't say, eat of this fruit because you want to remove yourself from your relationship with him. He actually affirms a godly desire in their heart. Because the desire that they had was they wanted to be more like him. So we see this pattern that began in the story of creation and it continues throughout all of scripture and it has continued in our own lives. Some of the craftiest moments of deception is when he plays on a godly desire that is in our heart and then he offers us a false path to the fulfillment of that desire. Satan isn't saying to us, hey, you shouldn't want to be at peace with others. Come on. He gives us a false path to this godly desire. Beware of a false shalom. Let me read that to you again. Satan is not saying to us, hey, you shouldn't want to be at peace with others. No, no, no. He gives us a false path for this godly desire. Beware of of a false shalom. Beware of a false shalom that pursues peace by ridding yourself relationally of everyone who is different than you are. See, the godly desire is to be at peace. The false path is homogeneity and sameness. The godly desire is peace. The false path is I will achieve that peace by ridding myself relationally of everybody who is different than I am. It's a false peace. It's part of the deceptive work of the enemy. And can we just agree that being tricked by the devil has never been and will not start being a valid excuse? Genesis 3.23 is the moment where God... And Jesus and the Holy Spirit agree together that Adam and Eve have to be cast out of the garden. Did they understand that they were tricked? Yes, they did. Did they understand that they were duped? Yes, they did. Did they understand that they were deceived? Yes, they did. But they were responsible for the deception that they allowed themselves to be swept away by. And it's true for you and I. It's true for you and I. Paul writing to the church of Corinth says, there's no temptation taken you, but what such as is common to man, but will with the temptation make a way for you to escape so that you might be able to bear it. He holds us responsible for even the deception that we allow ourselves to be swept away by. How about Matthew 25, 30? Jesus makes this statement. Now throw this, this useless servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a repeated phrase that Jesus uses all the time throughout the gospel. It's sobering, but it's important for us to understand that we are responsible for our own deception. Let me share this thought with you. Have you ever noticed that God's judgment in the Old Testament against all the nations 
including Israel, was never that they worshipped no one. Because if you can find that, show it to me, because it's not in there. His accusation was never that they worshipped no one. They were actually constantly worshipping. The problem is they were just worshipping false gods, because this is what the devil does. He takes a godly desire, and then he offers us a false path. Satan didn't try to rid people of their desire to worship. He just constantly gave them the wrong things to praise. There is a desire inside of us to be at peace with people. And the devil is coming in as he has always done and is going to continue to do to offer us a false path, a false path to a false peace. That's a lot of peas. Well, you and I have to be wary and wise of the strategies of the enemy. We don't want our desire to peace, for peace to be suppressed, but we want to be wise in how we pursue it. And in Romans 12, 14 to 18, this is what we find. Bless those who persecute you. Come on. Well, why is that? Because we have a responsibility to find shalom with people as best we can. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. How many of us are getting an A plus on that one? I know I'm not. Who here's rocking that one out? Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Listen, to, be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. The reason why verse 14 and verse 15 come in front of 16 is so that people will not say, I can live in harmony with people as long as they're like me. Because Paul is saying, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy. The implication is even when you're not happy, be happy with them. And the implication is that weep with those who weep is that weep and lament even when you're not sorrowful. He's saying with people that are different than you, live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think that you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see that you are honorable. It's powerful, isn't it? He defines an honorable person here as someone who seeks peace with others. And listen to what it says in verse 18. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Can we just agree that verse 18 is reaching back to verse 17 and 16 and 15 and 14? And he's talking to us, what he, he's, he's explaining to us what he means by all that you can. It means that do all that you can for how you need to change. So you need to be at peace with people who are different than you are. And I think, even in looking at my own life, and I think if you're honest, looking back at your life, we find ourselves in this mindset, in this mentality, where we say that I am willing to do all that I can to live at peace with everyone because I'm doing everything that I can to change them so they can be more like me. But that's not in here. It's not in here. Unfortunately, it's oftentimes in here. 
But that's what this book is about. It's trying to displace what's in here that's part of our humanity that might be even part of our deception and to replace it with truth. Belong. Beware and belong. Belong. Have you ever considered how creation reveals what God values? Have you ever considered how creation reveals what God values? Romans 1 19 to 20 reads this way. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. These are powerful words. It's saying that no one in the end is going to have a good excuse for saying they didn't believe God because Paul here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is saying the natural world in and of itself is screaming to us, God is real. And not just that he's real, but listen to what it says. It gets specific. It says that we can see his invisible qualities and his eternal power and his divine nature. And I think part of that means we can see through creation what he values and what's important to him and what matters. And I believe that one of the things that the story of creation tells us is that God values variety. Belong. The Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 was the perfect picture of shalom. Not because everything was the same, but rather because everything was different and worked in perfect harmony together. When we look into the creation story, we do not see a story where the central primary theme is homogeneity and sameness. Homogeneity is an academic word for sameness. We do not see that in there. Genesis 1, 1 to 31, what we see is variety. What we see is diversity. We see harmony, but harmony comes when all of these things that are dramatically different, some things are polar opposite. How about day and night? Some things are polar opposites. That's all, that's all part of the story for a reason. Because God was trying to say to you and me, this is part of what the human experience is going to be like. There are going to be people in this world that you're going to feel like you are a polar opposite to them. And the devil's lie is that you cannot be at peace with them because they're so different than you. And God says, no, 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 no. That's a cheap substitute. That's a false path to a false peace. Harmony. Belong. Do we sometimes have a sameness lens that obstructs our view of Scripture? Do we sometimes have a sameness lens that obstructs our view of Scripture? I think we all do. I think we all suffer from that at times. And like any lens, truth is what comes in and removes those scales from our eyes. When we look at the 12 disciples that Jesus called to himself, Anybody else has watched The Chosen? I know we're late to that party. You can get it on an app. They played it back at Easter. We DVR'd a bunch of episodes. It is phenomenal. Phenomenal. 
If you've never read the book 12 Ordinary Men by John MacArthur, I'm not a big fan of John MacArthur. I'm not a big fan of what he teaches, not a big fan of his points of view, but I'm a big fan of that book. 12 Ordinary Men, powerful lessons. The 12 disciples, most of them could not have been more different than one another. And I guarantee you this, most of them would have never chosen one of another to be a part of what Jesus was, would use to give birth to his vision, the church, and Christianity. Most of them came from different towns. Some didn't, but most did. They grew up in different towns. And Jewish people 2,000 years ago were just like any other ethnic group, just like they are today. They are not monolithic. D depending on where you grow up, you have different cultural and social norms that... that Define for you rights and wrongs within interactions. You have different languages, different vernacular, different ways that you communicate and talk with each other. One of Ethan's good friends was home this, is home this weekend from college. He goes to, to JMU, and we were hanging out on the porch last night, and uh, we were asking him about how his uh, first year at college is. First year's college there. He did community college here, then transferred there. And, and he said, you know, the strangest thing is they have this word that everybody at JMU uses. It's, it's the word SICE. I think it's S-I-C-E. You heard that word, David? SICE. I know, right? And he said, I said, I don't even think that's real because our youth pastor is up on all of that stuff. And he said, it's the strangest thing. It's this word that, and so we ask all kinds of questions. He explained it. We ask all kinds of questions. He explained it. We asked all kinds of questions. About 30 minutes later, we were still just as confused as we were when we started. He said, everybody, that he said it's the strangest thing. It has something to do with someone passing you something that you ask for. Even the way that you use it and why it would be needed is just odd. We said, look, you should get out of that school. I don't think that's a good place. No, we did not say that. But this is part of what I'm talking about. Even language itself Different communities of people find a way to communicate with each other that is unique and distinct. The disciples would have had all of these same challenges. Some of the conflict that they had is just because of miscommunication. I think Jesus did it that way on purpose. He didn't bring the 12 in and set them up to make it easy for them because he wanted us to learn from what life was going to be like for them. They came from wildly different backgrounds, different socioeconomic classes. They had wildly different personalities. They actually came from different tribes. The nation of Israel came out of 12 tribes. Those 12 tribes, as we study Scripture, all had their own unique biases and prejudices, even towards one another. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Come on, we're going to mix it all in together here. They had different politics. They had different rabbinical loyalties, the 12 disciples in and of themselves is a powerful picture of what shalom and peace with others looks like. It is not sameness. The first Jerusalem church, I'm just going to read these to you for the sake of time, the verses. Again, you can download the notes online. Acts 2.41, Acts 2.7-12, to Acts 6.1. When 3,000 people were birthed into the church by making their vow of devotion to Christ for the very first time on that day when Peter delivered that very first sermon, all of those people came from all around the world. 
the church has never been as ethnically diverse as it was on day one. And that was on purpose. It was on purpose. God, forgive us for trying to undo what you started. Paul's pattern of teaching. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 13, Romans 3, 28, Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Nothing in Paul's teachings said, find shalom and peace by ridding yourself of everyone who's different than you. Paul's message was just the opposite over and over and over and over and over again. What began in Genesis, people continued in Acts, and it is the heart of Christ that it would continue on today. And I want City Life Church to be on the bleeding edge of that, the tip of the spear. Belong to a diverse community of people, especially your church. Belong to a diverse community of people, especially your church, where you are challenged to work together with people who look, think, vote, and live, and that list could go on differently than you. Biblical shalom is found in harmony, not sameness. It's a cheap substitute, and it's a false path playing on a godly desire. Don't be duped. Don't be duped. I'm not talking about negotiating timeless morality. I'm not talking about negotiating core doctrines. That's why before we preached this series, Shalom, earlier in the year, we preached the series, Doxa. That was intentional. Because we want people to understand there are things that we will not negotiate. There's things that, that we believe. But part of that means that we have to agree that even though this book is infallible, that we are fallible in our interpretation of it, and we need to be around people that see things differently than we do just in case we're the one that has the blind spot. We're not saying make room for immorality. We're not saying to make room for false teaching. What we're saying is let's work it out together, a confident pluralism, Let's bring all of our truths to the marketplace because truth is also undefeated, just like Jesus is, because Jesus is truth. Jesus is truth. Jesus was able to be doctrinally pure and perfectly at peace with people who were different than he was. If he could do both, then we're called to do it too. We're called to do it too. All right, I'm not going to have the band come up. I'm just going to keep going and take the time that's left. Acts 15, 19. Acts 15, 19. So good. Acts chapter 15, such a powerful chapter in the Bible. And so my judgment, this is the first ruling by a church board that we are given a record of in the history of the church. This is the Jerusalem church meeting to decide what's going to be required of non-Jewish people who are making vows of devotion to Christ. What part of the Mosaic law is going to be demanded of them? And this is the ruling. So my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. What? What? 
If you're wondering what a Gentile is, a Gentile is everyone that is not Jewish. It is the catch-all. In, in Jesus' day, you were, you, you were either Jewish or whatever you were, you were a Gentile. But what were these people? Did they make a mistake? I do not think that they did. I don't think we're given Acts 15 as what not to do. I think we're given Acts 15 because of who we're supposed to become. So my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Also in Acts 15, there's this powerful statement where they say this, if God sees fit to give someone his Holy Spirit, who am I to reject them? <laughs> if God sees fit to give them his Holy Spirit, who am I to reject them? If God is willing to set as they are, they're going to be reconciled to me through Christ. Who am I? Who am I to say they will not be reconciled to me? If Jesus' death was enough to reconcile them to God, it's enough to reconcile them to us. It doesn't mean that we don't have things to work out. It doesn't mean that there might, not, there, there might be hard conversations that we have to have with each other. I'm not, I'm not being naive here. We're not being Pollyanna-ish. It's hard work. But it was hard work 2,000 years ago, too. But it's the hard work that we're called to do. Acts 15, this, is, this isn't just about gracious evangelism. The Holy Spirit inspired this decision for another reason. It is a strategy for the achievement of shalom. God wants you and I to know what it feels like to experience the miracle of shalom in relationship with others. So God was constantly pointing the first century church back toward diversity, so there is the hope of shalom and a pattern for future churches to follow. Acts 1.8 I'm covering a lot of text tonight because I know this message might challenge some of you the way that you believe, and so I was intentionally wrote this so it is not overly anecdotal. I want it to be severely textual. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And I've grown up in the church, and that verse gets used a whole lot. And I'm glad it does because it's powerful. But it was only ever taught to me geographically. I've shared this with you before. A couple of years ago, I was at a local meeting and Bishop Claude Alexander was teaching out of this text. And, and he was saying, it's not he's not saying it's not geographical, but what he was saying is it's more than just geographical. It's more than just geographical. Bishop Claude Alexander says that when he said, you're going to be my witness in Jerusalem, he was saying, you, you've got to learn to be in relationship with and be a witness for me with people who look like you and believe like you. Because that's what they would have found predominantly in Jerusalem. And then he says, and throughout Judea. Which means that you've got to be willing to reach people who maybe look down on you because Judea was a place where a lot of the wealthier people lived. And a lot of the people that were called, that birthed this, this grassroots movement to Christianity were just everyday laborers. And he was saying, you've also got to be in relationship with and reach people who look down on you. And then he says, Samaria, because they did a whole lot of looking down on the Samaritans. And, and so then he's saying, and you've got to be willing to be in relationship with and be a witness for me with people that you look down on. 
And then once you get all of that right, you can be a witness for me to the rest of the world. Can we just agree one of the reasons why the church and Christianity has such a poor witness in secular society is because we can't even get along with the people who believe the same things we do. And we're offended by the people that look down on us. So what do we do? We just find someone else to look down on to return the favor. We should not be surprised that we're falling behind and reaching the rest of the world. Because we have forsaken shalom. We have bought into a false path to a false peace. And it has undermined the witness of the church. So I'm coming back to Romans 12, 18 just one more time. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Can we, can we just make that a pledge tonight? How about we right there, I will do all that I can to live in peace with everyone. How about, how about we memorize that like a pledge? Romans 12, 18. I will do all that I can to live at peace with everyone. I will do all that I can to live at peace with with everyone. Put it on a post-it note. Slap it on the mirror in your bathroom. Put it on a little piece of paper that's under the keyboard in your da- at your desk. You can lift it up and read it every now and again. Stand with me tonight as I read these last verses to you. This is going to come out of Matthew 17. Oh, these verses... Right? Can we just admit so oftentimes when we read the Bible, we're just looking for the stuff that agrees with us. But we have a tendency to miss all the things that challenge us. I had never noticed this before. I was reading again this morning, Matthew 17. I'm going to start reading in verse 24. It says, on their arrival in Capernaum, the the collectors of the temple tax came to Peter and asked him, doesn't your teacher pay, this is so, you got, yeah, I love Peter so much, right? Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? And he said, yeah, of course we do. Yeah, he does. And, and then he goes home. And then he looks for Jesus, right? He's like, Jesus, we pay the tax, right? But I love this. This is before he even had a chance to speak because Jesus knew the question that he wanted to ask. He said to Peter, what, what do you think, Peter? Do kings tax their own people or the people they have conquered? They tax the people they have conquered, Peter replied. Here it comes. Well, then, Jesus said, the citizens are free. However, <laughs> however, even though you are not obligated even though you are not required, even though God's law doesn't demand it of you, even though even the laws of societal norms in the secular world would not expect it from you. However, we don't want to offend them. Wow. Anybody else ever seen that before? Have, Have we, as the body of Christ become too comfortable with offending people and too easily offendable? Have we as the family of God become too comfortable offending people because we say that it is true? But that's not what Jesus says here. 
Jesus says, sometimes just because it's true, sometimes just because you're right, sometimes just because they're the ones that need to change their mind and not you. What, what does he say? Be careful to not offend. Father, as we posture ourselves like the book of James says to us, looking into the word of God like a mirror, help us to not forget what we have seen when we walk away. Help us to beware, to be on guard for the wiles of the enemy and the craftiness of Lucifer as he continues even today roaming about seeking whom he may devour, playing on godly desires and offering us a false path, especially a false path to a false peace. Help us to settle for nothing less than true biblical shalom. Harmony. Harmony through diversity. Help us to belong. Help us to seek out diverse spaces, diverse relationships. And help us, oh God, help us, oh God, to be just as sorrowful when we offend and just as ashamed when we are too easily offended. Jesus, we want, we want, just as Vanessa said earlier, not to follow you into heaven, but we want you to be the pattern of our life today, today. May it be that the way of your peace and the way of your shalom would be the way of our lives. In Jesus' name, come on and everybody said together.